Well, this morning we are finishing off our series on the Psalms. We've been uh, in this little mini-series in between when Chris is preaching on Luke. So we are going to be in Psalm 6 this morning. So uh, open up your Bibles to Psalm 6. Do whatever you need to do to get there. Click, click swipe, tap. If you open your Bibles in the middle and you, you're either probably going to be in Psalms or Proverbs. If you're in Proverbs, go to the left. If you're in Psalms, find Psalm 6. And I will read for us this morning. So the choir master with stringed instruments according to the Shemineth, a psalm of David. O Lord, rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for I am languishing. Heal me, O Lord, for my bones are troubled. My soul also is greatly troubled. But you, O Lord, how long? Turn, O Lord, deliver my life. Save me for the sake of your steadfast love. For in death there is no remembrance of you. In Sheol, who will give you praise? I am weary with my mourning. Every night I flood my bed with tears. I drench my couch with my weeping. My eye wastes away because of grief. It grows weak because of all my foes. Depart from me, all you workers of evil, for the Lord has heard the sound of my weeping. The Lord has heard my plea. The Lord accepts my prayer. All my enemies shall be ashamed and greatly troubled. They shall turn back and be put to shame in a moment. Uh, John Calvin would refer to the book of Psalms as the anatomy of the soul. He wrote, For there is not an emotion of which anyone can be conscious that is not here represented as in a mirror. Or rather, the Holy Spirit has here drawn to the lives, life of all the griefs, sorrows, fears, doubts, hopes, cares, perplexities. I think John Calvin hit the nail on the head with that description. Psalms allow us to experience and relate to the emotion of God's people. We see their joyous praises, and we can sing those and rejoice along with them. We see the resilience in the face of uncertainty and can find hope in those psalms. And then we come to psalms like this one, Psalm 6, where we see the sorrow and the despair and suffering of the psalmist. And apparently those are the ones I keep getting asked to teach you on, but that's okay. <laughs> I am really grateful for it, honestly. While we are certainly blessed and should be thankful that we have such rich text here in the Psalms, text full of emotions of God's people that helps us to empathize with them, we must remember that the Psalms are also here to instruct and as we come to psalms like this, I know it's really easy for us just to try to relate to the sorrow and the suffering that the psalmists are feeling. But we must remember, we must understand that the psalms are here to make us feel and also to think with the psalmists. So that brings us to Psalm 6. Psalm 6 is a psalm of lament. It's a psalm of David in which he is expressing his grief and his sorrow. He is suffering. A few months ago, I preached on Psalms 42 and 43, in which I was talking about spiritual depression. If anyone remembers that message, I'm sure that this psalm seems familiar to you. 
it seems like David himself is experiencing a spiritual depression here. He feels weak, distraught, shaken. He's crying out to God and he's pleading for just a little bit of relief. He feels forgotten, alone, guilty. He's not sleeping. He's crying out all night long. His suffering is real and it's hard. Standing up here and teaching on suffering isn't easy for me. It's a psalm, as as some of you may remember uh, from my last sermon in September, this topic is just, it hits close to home right now. But it is a very important topic that we need to talk about. Because I desperately want our congregation here at Gateway to have a robust biblical understanding of suffering. I want us to know how to grieve well. I want us to know how to experience loss well. I want us to know how to struggle and to be in pain well. I want us to know how to go and suffer and just to throw ourselves at the feet of God like David did. And that's really important because suffering is a reality of this life. It was certainly a reality here for David in this psalm. So today we're going to be looking at how suffering is a reality of this life, but we can have faith in a God who cares and can be trusted in our times of suffering. We're first going to look at David's three appeals he is making to God in his prayer, and then we're going to look at David's faith throughout his suffering. So the first seven verses of this psalm, David is pleading with God for some relief. He is desperately seeking God to give him some reprieve from the situation that he is in. But the most integral part of David's plea is not in what he's asking. It's not the fact that he's asking for just some relief, but it's the basis that he's asking God. David's plea for relief is based on his relationship and knowledge of God. And so that's what we're going to focus on this morning. David's first appeal in his plea is to God's mercy. Verse 1 reads, O Lord, rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath. This psalm is known as the first penitential psalm, or psalm of repentance or confession. There are seven other penitential psalms in the book of Psalms, and uh, the most well-known of that being Psalm 51. Although this is known as a penitential psalm, it has a little bit different feeling than the others, though. Where the other psalm seems to be more explicit about the grief over sin and the transgression in the psalmist's life, in this psalm, there isn't an explicit confession or an explicit repentance. But David is definitely feeling the weight of guilt in his heart. God's judgment seems to be on him, and the weight of that judgment has him overwhelmed. He is very conscious that he deserves to be rebuked in some form or the other, whether it be for condemnation of some sin that he has in his life right now or just in general. He's crying out to God, I know that I deserve to be punished, but God, just please don't do it in your wrath. What's striking here is that he doesn't ask God to withhold that rebuke. He's not saying, God, don't punish me. But instead, he's just appealing to God's mercy. 
He's saying, God, if you must punish me in order to remind me of my guilt, in order to remind me of my sin, then do it. But just don't do it out of your anger or out of your wrath. Because, Lord, I'm suffering. So please have mercy on me. David is not approaching God and asking for relief on the basis of his own righteousness. But instead, he is appealing to God's mercy. He's not saying, Lord, you know who I am. I'm the king of Israel. You know that my, I have a good heart. You know that I love me. Just take me away from this situation. Just give me some relief. That's not what he's doing here. Instead, he is humbly submitting himself to God, knowing that he is undeserving and pleading with God for mercy. He knows that he's a sinner. He is very aware of his sins and transgressions, whether it be specific sin that he thinks God is punishing him for or something more general. He knows that whatever it, it, that he is getting, he deserves. He deserves to be punished because he understands his own standing compared to a righteous and holy God. This reminds me of a parable in Luke 18. Um, Chris covered this a few months ago where Jesus is describing a prayer of a Pharisee and a tax collector. If you guys want to flip over to your Bibles, I'm going to read from Luke 18, uh, 9 through 14. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector standing far off would not even lift his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Just as the tax collector did, David humbled himself before God He was the king of Israel, and he knew that he was a sinner. He was not approaching God on the basis of his own righteousness. He knew that he needed mercy, and in his most dire times, in his most, while he was suffering the most, he humbled himself, and he pleaded with God for mercy. So what do we do when we're faced with the overwhelming weight of guilt and the overwhelming weight of God's judgment. Have you ever felt like David here? Maybe you've done something wrong and you know it. You know that God is disrupting your life because of some sin. We, We do know that God does lovingly correct and discipline his children. Hebrews 12, 6 and 7 tells us, For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? But maybe you're just overwhelmed by what's going on in your life and you just feel like God's punishing you. 
You know, you're suffering, you're struggling, you're going through a lot, so you, you just think, well, God must be punishing me for something that I did because why else would I be going through this right now? Is that you? Maybe you've built up an idol in your heart, you've lifted something up greater than God. Maybe it's a perfect marriage or family, your job, your friends. Whatever it is, it just seems like God is tearing everything down around you. Maybe things are starting to fall apart at work. Things used to be great, but now for some reason, the world seems to be crumbling underneath you. You look around and you wonder, is this just because of something I did? Am I not reading my Bible enough? Am I not spending enough time with God? Maybe I haven't been a good steward. What is God doing here? Whatever it feels like, it might feel like you are suffering under God's judgment. You don't know if God is punishing you or if he's just trying to develop character in you by the things that are going on. Paul tells us in Romans 5, he says, But we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance. Endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And that may be the case, but we'll really never know. And what does it honestly matter when you feel the weight that you feel right now? When you feel downcast? So what do we do? What do we do when we feel like the righteous judgment of God is upon us? What do we do when we know that we don't deserve any better? Will you humble yourself and you pray like David did? Oh, Lord, rebuke me not in your anger. Don't rebuke me or discipline me in your wrath because I know, I know that I am a sinner. I know what I deserve, but you are a God of mercy. My entire life, my entire existence is an example of your great mercy, God. So, Lord, in my suffering, please have mercy. And how do we know that God is a merciful God? How can, we, we, how can we be sure that when we go to God in prayer and we go and we plead with God for mercy, that he will be merciful? We really don't have to search far in our Bibles for stories of God's mercy. We see it in David's own life, in the story of David and Bathsheba, when God mercifully sent Nathan to him in order to lead David to repentance. And if you're a Christian, you have the greatest mercy ever to point to. Ephesians 2, verses 4 and 5 say, But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved. We were dead in our sins and in our trespasses, and because of the mercy of God, he made us alive with Christ. God doesn't just have a little bit of mercy or just a moderate amount of mercy. It says God is rich with mercy. So when we are suffering, when you are feeling overwhelmed by the weight of God's judgment and it's crashing down on your soul, remember that you have received the greatest mercy 
that, you, that God can give and be confident in our God who will freely give mercy to those in whom he loves. So humble yourselves, throw yourselves at the feet of our God, who is a God of mercy. David's second appeal in his plea is to God's grace. The next two verses read, Be gracious to me, O Lord, for I am languishing. Heal me, O Lord, for my bones are troubled. My soul also is greatly troubled. But you, O Lord, how long? We get an even further glimpse into just how desperate David's situation is here. He's in anguish. He says that his bones and his soul are troubled. One translation says that his soul is in anguish. Now, some scholars will argue whether or not David is actually experiencing some physical pain here when he's talking about his bones, or whether he's just trying to illustrate just how deep his sorrow and suffering is at the moment. He might just be saying when he's talking about that his bones are troubled, that he's troubled to his very core. The thing that keeps him up, the structure that keeps him together is failing him. And if it's physical pain, that could even just be a manifestation of the spiritual suffering and depression that he is feeling right now. But regardless, there is no arguing that David is in some serious distress. At the end of verse 3, he's calling out to God, and the words just seem to fail him. He starts a sentence off. He starts off saying, But you, O Lord, and how long? God, how long is this going to be the case? How long am I going to be in anguish? How long am I going to be in sorrow? How long are you going to bring me down this low? How long, Lord, how long? But he's saying, Lord, I am in anguish, so be gracious to me. David here is appealing to God's grace. Grace is the unmerited, undeserving favor of God. The free gift that is given by God as an outpouring of his love. A blessing that is completely undeserving, unmerited, free gift. That's grace. Now, there's a common misconception that grace is really only a New Testament concept, that the Old Testament is about the law and the New Testament is about grace. People often point to John 1.17, which says, For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. And that has led some people to think that God was really only gracious after Jesus, but that is definitely not the case. We know from Scripture that God's grace has been a constant part of his character, a constant part of who he is from the beginning of time. 2 Timothy 1.9 says, He saved us and called us to a holy calling. Not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. And David is very aware of God's grace. He has seen it throughout the history of Israel. God had grace for Abraham and Sarah, despite their unbelief. God had grace for Moses, even though he was arrogant, stubborn, and pretty much doubted God at every turn. 
God still graciously guided him. And David had firsthand experience with the grace of God. I mean, David was a liar. He lusted, he stole, he killed. Yet despite all that, God's grace endured in his life. And David knew that. He knew that God was a God of grace. So in his suffering, in his time of weakness and pain, in his anguish, when he feels like he is in total and complete agony, he cries out to God. He says, God, just be gracious to me. God, I know that you are a God of grace. I have experienced your grace firsthand, and I know that your grace endures my failures. Lord, I am suffering and I am in anguish, so please be gracious to me. Let me experience the, the fullness and richness of your grace. Do you see how personal this plea is? Do you see how each aspect of David's plea is so personal with God? He knows God is a gracious God, and so he calls out in his most desperate time of need. And that's what we need to do as well. We are able to see an even clearer picture of grace through the cross of Christ. If you have believed in the power of the cross and have put your faith in Jesus, you are open to receive the immeasurable riches of his grace. Ephesians 2, 6 and 7, just continuing on from where we were in Ephesians previously. It says, By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. The immeasurable riches of God's grace. So much grace that it cannot even be measured. It will never run out. And that is the amount of grace that God has in store for those who follow Christ. And we have already experienced the greatest possible grace imaginable when we were saved from eternal damnation, when we had faith in Jesus Christ. But God doesn't even stop there. He's going to continue to pour out his grace on our lives for all ages to come. So when you are suffering, when you feel like your soul is in anguish, when you are in so much pain that the words just seem to fail you, that you can't even get them out, you need to remember that God is a God of grace. Remember the grace that we have in our God and plead with God to be gracious in your moment of suffering. David's third appeal in his plea is to God's steadfast love. As we continue in this psalm, David's plea is getting more and more intense. After verse 3, he was so weary that his words were failing him, and then we pick it back up in verse 4. Turn, O Lord, deliver my life. Save me for the sake of your steadfast love. For in death there is no remembrance of you in Sheol who will give you praise. For I am weary with my mourning. Every night I flood my bed with tears. I drench my couch with my weeping. My eye wastes away because of grief. It grows weak 
because of all my foes. The word turn in verse 4 can also be translated return. David feels like God has left him or withdrawn from him. He's turned away from him. And so he's crying out. He's saying, God, come back to me. God, where have you gone? Don't you know that I'm still down here suffering? And he's crying himself to sleep every night, so much so that he says that he is flooding his bed with tears. Do you know how much you have to cry to say that you're flooding your bed with tears? And maybe you do know. His eyes are wasting away because of grief, and he's being confronted with his foes. And all David wants is for God to turn back to him. He feels like God has left him behind. He feels alone and distraught, and he turns to the only one that can help him, God. David also seems to be fearing death here. Now, this could be a temporal death, or it could even be fear of an eternal death. He's crying out to God to save him from death. He knows that in death, his mortal praises, his praises on earth will cease. But he also knows that if he were to perish and to go to hell, then he knows that he will never be praising God's name because in Sheol, nobody will give God praise. David's situation is so dire that he is fearing for his own life. And he doesn't want his life to end. He doesn't want to die feeling that God's back is to him. So he asks God to save him for the sake of his steadfast love. David is appealing to God's unconditional, unfailing love that is not dependent on who you are or what you have done. He is asking God to save him on the basis of the love that he knows God has for him. The love that has never failed him and the love that has always been there. David, right now in this moment, even though he feels like God has turned away, he feels alone, he feels sorrowful, and yet he still remembers that God's love is steadfast. This plea shows just how personal and intimate David's relationship with God truly is. In the first four verses of this psalm, David calls out God by name five times. Five times he's calling out to the Lord, Yahweh, save me. Turn back to me, Yahweh. Deliver my life. He knows God's love is never failing. He knows that God's love has never left him. He calls, on God's, he calls God's love steadfast, even though he feels like God has withdrawn from him. And that's truly incredible. I think we sometimes don't really fully grasp the concept of God's steadfast love. God's unimmovable, unchangeable, faithful love that he has for us. For me personally, it blows my mind when I think about it, when I meditate about what it means that God has steadfast love for me. How can God really always love me, right? Like, I don't even always love me, and I know, and he knows me better than me. But he does. His love is constant. And that's an incredible truth that we need to hold close to our hearts. When we find ourselves in our darkest hours of our life, when you feel like God has all but left you, 
when you are in so down in despair, when you feel worthless and unlovable, you need to remember God's steadfast love. So is that you right now? Do you feel distant from God? Do you feel like he's withdrawn from you or just left you behind? Do you feel like it's your fault that you're just unlovable or that you just don't deserve his love? Remember what Paul tells us in Romans. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. There is nothing that can separate you from the love of God. The love of God will always be with you. And when you are in your moment of suffering, no matter how desperate that moment may seem, you can be confident that God loves you. For God is a God of steadfast love. And so that's David's plea. He makes three appeals to God. He appeals to God's mercy, his grace, and his steadfast love. But the only possible way that he can even make these appeals is because he knows God. David has a true understanding of God's character. He asks God for mercy, knowing that the Lord is a merciful God. He asks God for grace, knowing that God is a gracious God. He pleads with God on the basis of God's love, since he knows that his love will never fail him. All that he is asking here is coming and built on the relationship with God and knowledge of who God is. And that brings us to the second half of this psalm. So starting in verse 8, you see a pretty stark contrast from the first seven verses. From one moment, David can't even get the words out of his mouth. And then he just turns on a dime and has confidence in the Lord. Picking it back up in verse 8. Depart from me, all you workers of evil. For the Lord has heard the sound of my weeping. The Lord has heard my plea, and the Lord accepts my prayer. All my enemies shall be ashamed and greatly troubled. They shall turn back and put to shame in a moment. Many scholars actually argue and just are baffled by this change in David's tune here. Some try to actually speculate what happened between verses 7 and 8. You know, did David receive a prophecy from some oracle? Did God give him a revelation that he's going to take care of him, that everything's going to be okay? I think those speculations are just unnecessary and unhelpful. I believe what has happened between verses 7 and 8 is just truly more profound than if God spoke to David and told him that everything was just going to be okay. Simply put, David had faith. David is sure that God has heard his plea and accepts his prayer. But how can he be so confident? How can he have faith that God has actually heard him? Because he knows God. Yes, in his sorrow and in his suffering, he felt like God abandoned him. He felt like he deserved harsh judgment from God, and he is still suffering, and he is still in pain and anguish 
here when we get to verse 8. But through all of that, he has never lost his faith. He is able to confidently say, God has heard my plea and he accepts my prayer. And how foolish it is for everyone who has opposed me because it is not me that you have opposed, but you have opposed God and I have faith in my God. I was troubled and now you will be. I was ashamed and now you will be because God has heard my prayer. David has faith throughout his suffering and his faith is built on the foundation of his relationship with God. And that is tremendously important for us to grasp this morning. David's faith throughout his life is not built on his own merits. It's not built on his past experiences. It's not built on his wealth. It's not built on his worldly security. It is built squarely on who God is. The faith that gets David through his suffering is built on the character of God. I know life is hard, and I know some of you here this morning are going through a lot. And for others, this might actually be an easy season in your life. But regardless of where you are this morning, it is very important that you understand who and what you have put your faith in. It's important to have faith in a—it's impossible to have faith in a God that we just don't know. And that's why it's vitally important that we continue to grow in understanding of the depths of the character of God. And that understanding comes from Scripture, comes from prayer, comes from time with God while I was preparing the sermon, actually, I was able to remind myself of all these aspects of God by just going back through Scripture. I had to look back at stories of his mercy and his grace and his love, and I was just reminded of who he is over and over again. And that gave me so much hope. It strengthened my own faith. And this isn't something that we need to just do while we're suffering when you feel like you're depressed or you're in anguish. That's not the time to build your faith on who God is. We need to be constantly building our faith in the holy God in who we love. Because if you wait, if you wait to strengthen your faith, if you wait to get to know who God truly is when things are falling apart around you, when you are in anguish and when you are suffering, those days are going to be a lot harder. It is common and easy in this culture to put our faith in ourselves. You know, we have grit and determination, and so we just think that we can get through anything. But we know that we're actually just fooling ourselves. And that weak foundation just comes crashing down as soon as stuff gets real. But we know that we can build our faith on a God who does not crumble under the pressures of this world. We can have hope in a God that is greater than anything we hold in this world. And that is a lasting foundation. And if you're here this morning and you don't know God, if you're here this morning and you have never put your faith in the blood of Jesus Christ, if you have never...